Tyler's message is room for doubt. Emily Dixon said, bless you. Emily Dixon said, we both believe and disbelieve a hundred times an hour, which keeps believing nimble. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite Christian authors, says this. Authors, that's author, not with an F. I said offers, but it's authors. And I quote, I must exercise faith simply to believe that God exists. A basic requirement, bless you, for any relationship. And yet when I wish to explore how faith works, I usually sneak in by the back door of doubt. For I best learn about my own need for faith during its absence. God's invisibility guarantees I will experience times of doubt. End of quote. It seems that everyone dangles on a pendulum that swings from belief to unbelief, back to belief, and ends where? Well, sadly to say, some never find faith. Or they find it, and it's so fragile that it shatters at the first sign of crisis. Because God did not meet their expectations. We all have expectations. We have expectations of each other, and we definitely have expectations of God. Peter DeVries raised extremely, was raised extremely strict legalistic background, Christian home, causing him to later write savage comic novels about the loss of faith. He, and in these, in these comic dark novels, actually, he expresses his doubt of God and it comes out. In his novel, The Blood of the Lamb, he tells of Don Wanderhope, father of an 11-year-old girl who contracts leukemia. Just as the bone marrow begins to respond to treatment and she approaches remission, an infection sweeps through the ward and kills her. Wander Hope, who has brought in a cake with his daughter's name on it, at least the hospital, returns to the church where he prayed for her healing and hurls the cake at the crucifix hanging in the front of the church. The cake hits just beneath the crown of thorns and brightly colored icing drips down Jesus' defect, dejected face of stone. You ever been there where this father was? You ever doubt God? Never doubt his actions. Perhaps his silence, because sometimes it's deafening. Or maybe you've doubted his lack of action. Jesus' own disciples struggled with doubt. And I think for sometimes for us, that's hard for us to grasp because I've seen miracles, nothing like they've seen miracles. I've never seen anybody brought back from the dead. They saw that. They saw people with their skin rotting off, Jesus speaking a few words that looked like baby skin again. They, they witnessed all that. But yet, even in all that, knowing, uh, seeing him still the storm and on and on, there's a whole list of miracles that he did. They still had doubts. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it, said Jesus' disciples, in words that resonate in every doubter. Jesus' listeners found themselves simultaneously attracted and repelled like a compass needle that's brought close to a magnet. And as his words sank in, one by one, the crowd of onlookers and followers slouched away till all that was left was his disciples. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked them in a tone somewhere between plaintiveness and resignation. As usual, Simon Peter spoke up, Lord, to whom shall we go? It's my answer when I doubt. I question God. I question God when, when, when I see things happen to children. I question God when somebody's taken prematurely. But really, it's not up to me to question. I'm not in charge. 
God is. Nonetheless, we still ask, where else can I go when tragedy hits me? Where else can I go when you hurt? What's the alternative? Go back to the dark side where Satan would love for us to return. He hates you. He wants to murder you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy everything about you. That is his modus operandi. That's what he does. Why would you want to go back to that? But when I ask this question, as they ask it, Lord, to whom shall we go? In John 20, 24 through 29, we read of one who has been marked as a doubter for millennia. Starting in verse 24, one of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. Can you imagine the excitement in their voices? I think they doubted too. And it didn't click till they looked upon the Lord and saw him face to face in his resurrected body. And then they finally got it. But I can imagine the excitement in their voice. Thomas wasn't there, but when they saw him, this is what they said. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were again together. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand in the wound of my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas explained, exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe anyway. That's us. I've never seen Jesus, but I want to. I get to thinking about it. It won't till Beetle, God stops his heart and I cross that river. The New Testament tells us that Jesus had 12 disciples. Among them was one named Thomas. Thomas is rarely mentioned by the name throughout much of the text, but after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we are given a short narrative that focuses on him at his most vulnerable time. It's become part of our vernacular to call someone a doubting Thomas. And it's easy to see why all the biblical really account text points out is that he doubted. That, that's all we've seen him do. But it seems to me unfair to leave Thomas stuck with that name forever. After all, the text ends with him believing and not doubting. But perhaps in our increasingly skeptical world, Thomas' story is just the sort of example we need to, that we find ourselves in when we face our own doubts, which we all have. The way of faith is more difficult to walk, it seems. Today, the text will focus on three important questions. Why did Thomas leave? Why did Thomas return? And where did he go? First question, why did Thomas leave? I'm kind of amazed at this, but CNN produced this, like a little mini-series called Finding Jesus. Some of you may have watched it. Here's a clip from that about Thomas. Let's watch. He's not there on Easter Sunday night when Jesus first appears to the 10. He misses out on Jesus saying, receive the Holy Spirit. It strongly suggests that he had not only abandoned hope in Jesus, he had abandoned the other disciples as well.
Where were you? Away. I went away. All he said in that clip was he went away. So the Bible tells us that when Jesus first appeared to the ten, Judas having hanged himself and him being gone, appeared to them after the resurrection, he wasn't around. And the text doesn't really say where he was at. But he was not with them for this ground-shifting event. And Jesus predicted that his disciples would be scattered after his arrest in Matthew 26, 31. But not only was Thomas not there, he was alone. It seems that he had not only lost his faith in Jesus and the movement, also in his fellow disciples as well. Certainly seeing everyone, including himself, be kicked to having abandoned Jesus when the soldiers came, Thomas doubted not only Jesus' message, but whether or not he or the others truly believed in their teacher at all. First time of trouble, they hit the road. They were all still truly men of little faith, as Jesus had once called them on a stormy boat ride. Thomas felt like a weasel and his fellow disciples a pack of weasels. So it's easy to see why Thomas put some distance between himself and the whole situation. And we see that in the modern-day church. We see that in modern-day life. It's not uncommon for us to withdraw from others when we find our faith tested, when we see, when we feel hurt or when we fall short of the mark. And sometimes we feel that God has failed us or more common that we've failed him. And the easiest thing we can think of of doing is to hide or place no expectations on God at all. So what do we do? We withdraw. Withdraw inwardly or we also enjoy withdraw outwardly. Either way, sin and pain and failure isolate us completely, driving us away from God and from others, just like Thomas. And sometimes church is the last place we want to be, especially if we failed publicly and everybody knows what we've been up to. We shot, we don't come, which is the worst thing that we can do. If there's any place in the world you need to be when you're hurting, it's here. Through the centuries, this question of doubt has plagued believers. Martin Luther, the great German reformer who started the reformation of the church and who all Protestant churches came out of, battled constantly against doubt and depression. For more than a week, Luther once wrote, Christ was wholly lost, and I was shaken by the desperation and blasphemy against God. Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the greatest preachers that ever drew breath in England, would spend days and sometimes weeks in bed being totally depressed and in doubt of God. And then he would shake himself from that get bed and go preach some of the greatest messages that's ever been preached in human language. In a prayer for Owen Meany, novelist John Irvin describes a teacher who made their faith attractive because he valued doubt. Did you get that? The students in his theology classes, he made faith attractive because he left room for doubt. Irving was probably alluding to his own boarding school teacher, Frederick Buchner, who, who, th who he thinks at the front of the book. Buchner takes for granted that a relationship between an invisible God and invisible humans will always involve an element of doubt. Why? Because you can't see him. You can't touch him. That's why the body of Christ is so important. Buchner says this, and I quote, without somehow destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there were no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. 
end of quote. I think the world of science has proved God over and over. Some don't believe that, but I've read some scientific findings that do. But we want tangible results, and we see that in people's lives. I heard this in a message one time, and it stuck to me about faith. Do you believe in sight? We can see. Can you cut open my eyeball and find it? You believe in hearing? Can you cut my ear off and look inside and, find, and see hearing? Or with the nose smell or with the mouth speech? We believe in speech. That's what we're using here. You can't prove it exists. You can't touch it. You can't hold it. It's the same with our faith. Why do we who believe, who sometimes doubt, never leave God? To where else would we go? The world holds all kinds of dangers and condemnation. Where on earth can you find unconditional love? It's only from God. And I know that we love our spouses and our significant others and our children. But do we love them unconditional? I hope I do. I don't think I do, not the way God does. Because there's nothing more, nothing less that you can do to make God love you any more than he does at this moment. Where else can you find that? Where else can you find true understanding? Where can you find comfort? Where can you find grace on tap that regardless of what I've done, I step under that tap and God pulls that lever and it just soaks me? Where else offers grace? Nowhere else in the world. Or mercy. Second question, why did Thomas return? With Jesus crucified, it would make sense why Thomas would leave. After all, without Jesus, how can there be a Jesus movement? He's gone. Confronted with his own shame and pain and moral weaknesses that week, it is easy for us to understand why Thomas would disappear down a hole. And even if he wasn't self-aware and instead was merely projecting his own shame on the other disciples... It would make sense why he would abandon them. What's harder to understand? Why would he ever return? You ever went down the hole? I think there's people related to Crossroads this morning that are in that hole. They're not here. And that's why I stress, try to stress, how important it is for you to look around and see the people that you know have been here and you, you love, and you've not seen him for a while, it's important that you contact them. Text, call, Facebook, whatever you do, they need to hear that from you. It's different when I say it. They expect it out of me and the staff. But they don't expect it from you. And do you know, imagine how heartfelt that would feel coming from you. Wow, my brother or sister missed me at church. So here's the question that I posed this morning. Those that, like Thomas go to their holes, do we go in that hole after them? That's the question. And only you can answer that because you're the one that's going to have to do it. Evidently, the disciples didn't know where he was at, and it doesn't really say if they went looking for him or not. One thing held him back from total abandonment, from totally cutting it off. That was his friends, his fellow disciples, who he traveled with and lived with, lived with three years. They were more than friends. They were brothers. I'll guarantee you that you know you learn a lot more about somebody if you live with them. 
Because as I've said before, we all have Jekyll and Hyde personalities and the monster lives at your house. They had seen each other's monsters. They knew that. They were more than friends. They were family. And so when life hit the fan for him, they were still there for him. Thomas might have had his doubts suffocating him, but he still believed in something. He believed in his friends, whatever made him briefly walk away. He knew that they would be welcoming him back with open arms. He didn't worry about that. He also returned because the disciples were all in the same boat. They were all hunted, they were all afraid, and they were all ashamed. Peter's face seemed the strongest, but it had been tested to the breaking point and found wanting as well. And even though these disciples had new information to share, that he was alive, no one could deny that they were surprised as well when they saw Christ. They were journeying life together. It brings up an important question for believers. How willing are we to welcome doubt and moral failure into our midst? When somebody fails morally in this community, the gossip goes out. And if we don't hear about it, we'll read about it on Facebook or Twitter because it's out there because we like to expose each other's weaknesses and sin. It's it's part of our humanness. We love to see other people squirm. So, So having said that, do we welcome these people back in our midst? Despite the fact that Thomas makes it clear that he does not believe the testimony of his friends, he is welcome to stay among friends. Is Crossroads uh, the church, or is it the kind of place that makes room for the doubter, for the struggling sinner, for the backslider? Do we really believe that anybody can walk in these doors and be welcomed? I hope so. That's my prayer. That is something that that we've tried to create since our inception on October 4th, 1998. That it's a church that anybody can come in. I hope that's the case. It's hard for me to say that because I'm not a visitor anymore. Everybody know, you know, they, you know me and I know you when you walk in. It's, it's different, but praise God for visitors. And I pray that you make them feel welcome. Where did Thomas go? It's not wrong to say that Thomas earned his name as doubter, but it, it's really not very fair. We do not speak of denying Peter. The way we speak about Thomas, and perhaps because Peter's story comes back to life in the text and there's more written about him, Thomas, he kind of disappears from the New Testament after this encounter. But in fairness to poor, much aligned Thomas, we need to set the record straight. Here's a second clip from Finding Jesus. So fast forward to the next recorded meeting of all the disciples, the 11, in the upper room, still behind locked doors. This is my body. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus appears again, and it appears quite specifically an appearance to recover Thomas from his disbelief. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. My Lord, 
My God. Thomas's proclamation in front of the risen Christ, my Lord and my God, is one of the most important Christian confessions of faith. It's the only place in the New Testament where Christ is called God. That, I think, is incredibly significant. Because you have now seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet still believe. So I ask you this morning, that was, that was Thomas's epiphany. Have you had that? If you had that point where you knew about Christ and maybe you'd even been at the altar, but there was some, something happened that brought you to that, to your knees, to say, my Lord and my God. I think part of the, part of the misconception that we have sometimes with God, that God doesn't always use happy times or enjoyable circumstances to get us to make that epiphany. When Jesus appears to Thomas, he invites him to leave behind his past and enter into the fullness of faith. A hard sentence, easy to read, extremely hard to do. Can any of us raise our hands in great confidence this morning and say, my total past is behind me. It's never brought up. Satan never brings it to mind. It never bothers me. I can't raise my hand. It's one of the tools that he uses against us. And Jesus knew that with Thomas, and that's why he said, put your past behind you, Thomas, and enter into the fullness of faith. From this day forward is a new life. He echoes Thomas' words back to him and even goes so far as to offer his wounds for inspection. But most importantly, Jesus did not condemn him for his doubts. The text does not tell us whether Thomas followed through with his ultimatum, as there is no evidence, really, that actually he touched him. Instead, the text tells us that Thomas simply replied, My Lord and my God, John 20, 28. A significant confession and one that would mark his transition from the road of doubt into the way of faith. Thomas was utterly transformed in this encounter. Tradition tells us that he traveled to India. That would have been the furthest known destination of any of the 12 apostles. Jesus professed that his mission would extend to the ends of the world on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1.8. And it's traditionally, in the tradition, is correct. Thomas made this a reality. Most people in Judea would have considered India the ends of the earth. While there, he started a number of churches in southeast India, churches that incredibly still speak Aramaic as part of its liturgy today. Though the journey to India would have been far, it would not, has not the toughest distance Thomas had ever crossed, which was that thin line that separated his doubt from faith. Doubt is the skeleton in the closet of faith. I know no better way to treat skeletons than to bring it out to the open and expose it for what it is. It is not something to hide or fear, but a hard structure on which living tissue may grow. If I ask every person to get up from your seat and leave the building this morning whose faith has wavered as a result of tragedy, of sickness, of accident, or a conscious, confidence-shaking encounter with science, 
or with another religion or disillusionment with a church or a pastor or individual Christians? Would there be anybody left in here this morning, including me? We often echo the words of Minnie Driver in the movie Return to Me. If you remember that movie, it's an older movie, but she was waiting for a heart transplant, and a young woman got killed, and she got the heart. And as, God, as, as things worked out and progressed, she had the heart of a man that she started to see, and it really up, upset the apple cart, so to speak. And in one scene, she was, she was in trauma almost, and, and she uttered these words, God, what were you thinking? You ever said that? You didn't expect it to happen to you. You didn't expect it to happen to your family. God, what were you thinking? Well, you know what? He's probably not going to tell you. So here's at that crossroads of, of faith and doubt. Does God say to us, are you going to leave me? Because I didn't please you? You're going to leave me because I answered that prayer in another way? Not me. I'm right here. I'm going to stay here. I will never understand some of the things that happen in this world. But it's not for me to understand. I'm not God. I'm Eddie. Regards what happens to me. I'm going to raise my face to heaven and say, Lord, where else would I go? I don't know how the kind of faith required of a Christian living in the 20th century, the 21st century, can be at all if it's not grounded on the experience of unbelief, wrote novelist Flannery O'Connor to a friend. Peter said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It is the most natural and most human and most agonizing prayer in the Gospels. And I think it's the foundation Foundational prayer of faith. O'Connor got her characters wrong. The quote comes from the demoniac's father in Mark 9, not Peter, but her sentiment was right. Doubt always coexists with faith, for in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? And how do you know that you have it if you've never exercised it? It's not, faith's not something you think. It's something you do. It's something that you have to live. But when the bottom falls out, how do you react? Do you draw on God or run the other way? So people whom I love this morning, there's nothing wrong with experiencing doubt. It's going to happen to you. It's on the flip side of the coin of faith. It's like exhilaration is the partner to fear. You can't have faith unless you first conquer doubt. But Thomas is an instructive example for the way that doubt, pain, and sin can drive us into isolation. His story reminds us how desperately we need close friends with us for the journey. And as we travel together, we must remember our own struggles and make room for others who are wrestling and hurting. However, Thomas' story shows us that doubt cannot be our final foundation. We are invited to encounter the risen Christ who is found to anyone who believes. Jesus does not shun us for our doubts, but neither does he expect us to live in them. He expects us to give them to him and take care of them. When I doubt, I look to Jesus, who God laid bare to human view, the proof of God's refusal to twist arms. Here's the interesting thing about Christ in the Bible. Jesus often makes it harder, not easier, for people to believe. 
we love money. <laughs> Maybe not some more than others, but it's, it, it's our whole existence, it seems, rests upon it. Can you imagine the look in the young rich man's face when Jesus looked him in the eye and said, go sell all you have and follow me. Slap in the face, he he couldn't do it. So it seems that Jesus, why didn't Jesus say, sell 10%, give to me? He didn't say that. So sometimes we read those stories and we scratch our heads. Jesus never violated an individual's freedom to decide, even to decide against them. He didn't force them. He didn't grab them by the shirt and drag them up and say, believe in me. He didn't do like Constantine when he was emperor of Rome, that people had to accept Christ at the point of the sword. And if they didn't, they went ahead and pushed it in and murdered them. Boy, I'm a believer. (laughs) He didn't do that. I marvel at how gentle Jesus handled the reports of John the Baptist's doubts in prison and how tenderly he restored Peter after his brusque betrayal. And Jesus' story of the prodigal son reveals the divine attitude of forgiveness in advance. The father forgave him before he ever saw him again. That may seem indulgent and risky. God takes risks with us, but it never, but it did restore a dead son to life. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, said Jesus. I love that sweeping magisterial statement because I have concluded its converse is also true. Truth that does not set free is not truth at all. So I ask you this morning in closing, has the truth set you free? Are you free in your life? And the truth of Christ has done that. There's room for doubt in our faith walk because we're human, but we must never, ever forget that the cure for our doubt is found in Christ and Christ alone, who has the truth Our faith in that truth can drive doubt away. And I do believe Thomas' words, Jesus' words to Thomas are his words to many of us today in John 20, 17, and 18. Don't be faithless any longer. Don't play games any longer. Don't come up to to just the edge before making that step in faith. Quit doing that. You need to do it now. Believe, he said. And let Thomas' response be ours as well, my Lord and my God. Maybe you need healed this morning from your past. Maybe there are doubts that have lingered that you can't get beyond because you keep asking that three-letter question. Why, why, why? Charles Swindoll, who I admire greatly, said in all of his years of ministry, God's only told him why one time. It's not for us to know. Even the questions that he doesn't answer for me, I believe that he is on the throne and he knows what he's doing. And I I trust my life into his hands 100%. And that's what he calls us all to do. If you need prayed with this morning, please come. Lord, we love you. We don't understand you sometimes, but that's our humanness. We're never going to understand why things happen. Why bad things happen to good people, even. We don't understand it, but you do and you're in charge. And I just pray, God, if... Our faith is wavering this morning. If there is doubt that you might help us to remove that and just trust in you, Lord. Because like I said, you're such a good, good father. And where else would we go? So I thank you for that. I thank you for the offer, the opportunity, the invitation for us to be in you and be your children and as you love us and guide and direct us. So right now, Father, as you deal with our hearts, just help us to be honest. 
We ask these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.